Are you ready to clear a new path? Are you ready to get vulnerable and lead with truth? Welcome to Clearing a New Path Podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Clearing a New Path Podcast is an invitation to listen and learn along with me on the road to building a more united, feminist, anti-oppressive rural Canada, one that genuinely embraces authenticity and is rooted in reconciliation. Each episode, we'll examine issues and look for collective solutions all outside of the city limits. Let's learn together, clearing a new path. Manny Chakrabarty grew up in Yellowknife Northwest Territories, where she found her desire to make a social impact through looking at world problems with a community-oriented lens. She has a business degree and a master's degree in economics from the University of Alberta, and a master's in comparative politics with the London School of Economics and Political Science. Manny's work experience spans both the public and private sectors. She was an economist with Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, and most recently, a senior consultant with Deloitte. Manny now calls Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, her current home. I met Manny through a project with the YWCA. Her company was hired to profile other companies, and mine was one of them. I was struck by her optimistic and wise spirit and her beautiful blend of understanding humanness as well as the world of economics. I really enjoyed our conversation. I think you will too. Welcome. Today, I have the absolute honor of speaking with Manny Chakrabarty from ASBB Economics and Research. I'm so happy to be chatting with you today, Manny. Oh, thank you, Shauna. It's a pleasure to chat with you as well. So tell me about ASBB Economics and Research. What do you do? Sure. Well, Shauna, I, I just would like to say that, you know, we're, we're pretty similar in the sense that we're both rural. Um, so I'd start with saying that, AS, you know, proudly ASBB Economics and Research is a rurally based organization. Um, and we try to bring, you know, the kind of the most evidence based economic and socioeconomic research to our clients who, who are not-for-profits, government, community-based organizations, and even businesses to make sure that they have all the evidence to make the right decisions. Um, and we try to do that in a very collaborative way where we apply like intersectionality lens uh, to, to our work. So we understand that, you know, the way we grow up, where we grow up, you know, the opportunities or privileges that we have in our lives shape those socioeconomic outcomes. And you know, we try to collaboratively solve those, you know, uh, systematic issues or what, whatever whatever that we're solving to ensure that at the end of the day, the problems that we're solving for are humans. So I guess in a way you can say we kind of humanize economics uh, through, a, through a socioeconomic lens. Wow, I love that. 
humanizing economics, that, that sounds really big, actually, and really important. Um, how did you choose this profession? What or did it choose you? Um, I think, I think the second, you know, but I think, you know, just like all choices, you know, it's mutual, like you, you choose, you also choose in some way. But I think economics is not something that I had known about, you know, it's not something that I even knew the term were growing up. But I guess what really motivated me was that because I'm a first generation immigrant, and I moved to Canada at the age of 11, I did spend, you know, some working memory time in India. And during that time, you know, my parents are also from an Indian village, you know, which in Indian villages are mostly um, really poverty ridden. And so I, I, you know, I came, that's my origin, is that I'm, a, I, I'm from a rural area in India. And so I always find myself in these rural areas. And, you know, growing up with, you know, in with my aunt and uncle and, and my family, I saw certain kids, they're my, they were my best friends, I, we played around. Um, and I saw that my life took a different trajectory than theirs. And part of that was my parents, you know, they got educated, they climbed out of poverty, they, you know, they, you know, they basically pushed themselves out of poverty. And I just thought like, well, what if I wasn't born in my family? What if I was born in another one? You know, like I would be, you know, that child. And um, since then, I understood that, you know, education um, is, is a big catalyst for climbing out of poverty in rural areas. And so I knew that I would go and get educated somewhere. And my parents obviously had always pushed me all my life to get educated because they understood the value of it. So when I, you know, when I graduated high school, I wanted to do a gap year and travel the world. And they're like, yeah, good luck, you know, over your dead body. Um, so I went, I, I went straight to, you know, university at 17 years old. Um, and so, so I think that that kind of concept of, had I been born on another side, like, which is, I think, what John Rawls calls the, the curtain, you know, like, what have I done in my life, in my lifetime, so that if in my next life, I get born on that other side, is it a better society for that person? Have I have I done my job to make it a better society if they had if I had fallen on that same curtain? Because it's just a chance and luck where we are born and whom we're born to, you know, that I don't think that that's a total choice. And so I really think about that every single day. That's I feel I feel deeply that that's the purpose of my life. How do I leave a better society behind through economics? You know, um, and that's kind of my motivation. I I went to school to be honest in psychology because as I said I didn't understand the concept of economics. I couldn't memorize anything, so I got like D's, and I was surely like can't be doing a psychology major with D's. Like it's not going to work out. So can't tell my parents about these grades so better change you know um and I applied to business didn't get in the first year but then I got into got into it the second year and you know through getting into business you have to take economics 101 and 102 and I just started to do well for the first time in my university year uh in economics like I just started to get really good grades because I got it I could spend hours and hours and hours studying it and it just felt to me like the thing that I'm good at. And um, while, you know, there has been some setbacks in my career, I felt that I never felt that I shouldn't be an economist. I've, I've always loved to be an economist. I, I love solving economic problems. And any way I can tie into economics is, 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 a, is a sure way for, for um, happiness for me. 
That's very inspiring. Thank you for sharing your story. I really appreciate that a lot. And, and I think uh, it will touch so many of us. Um, what about rural Canadian communities? What are your thoughts? Um, you are an entrepreneur now. Uh, you live in a rural community and some of your team uh, works remotely. What are, you, right. what are your thoughts on, on rural Canada's economy? Yeah. I think, you know, post-COVID, I'd like to say that there is a huge potential for rural communities to grow. You know, we've seen population growth in rural communities that we haven't seen before. You know, rural communities that are located close to urban centers are obviously seeing a higher growth than than other rural communities. But nevertheless, like our our today's world of remote work has really done a lot of growth for rural communities. You know, it's allowed individuals and population growth to happen, which means more restaurants can grow, you know, get more restaurants can open, more shops can open. People see diversity that people haven't seen before because you have like a diverse population moving in that creates awareness, you know, that that talks about systematic injustices or at least sheds the light onto it, you know. And it kind of, you know, Im- does a little bit of imbalancing of power, which is a catalyst to movement, you know, which is change. Um, you know, some folks lose their power and some pe- folks gain it. And so it's a natural way of balancing um, what I felt like was a stagnant um, economy before. And it's it's just rebounding. So I, I in, in short, I think rural areas have a lot of potential and um, I'm happy to be a part of that growth. What do you think rural communities are good at? So their strengths and what do you <laughs> think are some of the weaknesses of rural communities now, like in 2023, 2024? Yeah. Well, you know, I think I'll give you kind of the standard answer just because the standard answer I feel is the true one. Um, I think rural communities have an insanely great community knit circle. So when I started my business, you know, not having grown up in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, and only been living here for about three years, the amount of support and mentorship and, you know, uh, community support that I got, I wouldn't have even gotten it, um, you know, in Yellowknife where I had grown up. And so I felt like that's just the reality of a really small place. Now, in Yellowknife, I have all of my networks and, you know, there's great mentorship and, and support there. But what I feel is that Yellowknife is still a city hub for Northwest Territories. And it's it's not totally rural. It is it is it is a city. And, you know, and I felt like all my life living in cities, you know, people people obviously want the best for you, but what's lacking is this sense of community, like the sense of like ownership and other people's success. Like we're a community, we're gonna do what it takes to, you know, build our community. And that's something that I learned for the first time after I moved to Yarmouth, you know, I, I developed my sense of community well-being and contributing to my community, being proud of where I'm from when an issue arises, like jumping into it with the rest of the community to solve it. Like those are things I learned only by living rurally. And I think that that's what rural communities do best. They solve their problems. They all come together, roll up their sleeves and get it done. And, you know, you kind of don't see that. You don't understand that. You don't understand the value of that until you live rurally, I'd say. And what about weaknesses? What what could use some improvement? Well, I think, you know, rural communities really suffer because they're isolated in an infrastructure way. Um, from what I've seen, transportation would be a big 
big savior, you know, um, if we are connect connected to urban centers, if we, you know, are better able to talent mobilize, knowledge mobilize, mobilize our products, you know, that's a, that's a sure win for rural communities. You know, we we have everything that urban centers do, you know, it's a, it, but I feel that connectivity is key. And I think, frankly, you know, a lot of folks probably want to live rural. Either they want to come back home or they want to live rural, but they can't because their career is still, you know, stuck in the city. And I think that transportation and building the infrastructure and connectivity is is what is required to alleviate some of that weakness, you know. What about trends? What are you seeing? Um, what should people be paying attention to in rural communities? I think diversity is the biggest trend folks should be paying attention to. You know, you see all kinds of new people from all corners of the world and all kinds of restaurants popping up, you know, of different ethnicities. And, you know, rural communities are seeing a big flow of diversity that they haven't seen before, which is, I think, it's a great thing. So that's that's one trend. Secondly, I think I've seen this trend of, you know, um, individuals all across Canada and a lot, of, a lot across, you know, similar countries, like appreciating the rural life for the first time. You know, it was, it was almost like a negative connotation. Like I'm from a small town. I'm not from London, you know, England or New York City. Like, you know, I'm not so fancy, whatever that is. But now for a first time, you know, being quiet, being in peace in nature is the new luxury. For folks and 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 that's a new trend that you know I, I didn't foresee seeing but apparently that's that's the new luxury these days so that's kind of a nice new trend um and I think you know like I said the economic in, economic piece for the first time we're seeing a trend of economic growth population growth in rural communities which I which I think is a great thing but I think as a country we've got to do a few more things for it to be sustainable like fix our housing piece um so yeah, we can we can talk about that piece forever, but that's for another podcast, I suppose. Okay. Well, I was going to say, um, you know, what should people be paying attention to? What should people be focusing on? Or what do you wish people would would focus more of their attention on? Perhaps municipal leaders or economic developers in small communities. Mm-hmm. What do you think that they should, you know, be turning their attention to rather than this? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm hesitant to say that my, what I'm about to say will apply to all rural communities across Canada. I can kind of just say from an Atlantic point of view, but nevertheless, I think that there are some, you know, similar conclusions to be drawn. And that I think is affordable housing. You know, I think that housing is really a supply issue uh, currently. There's just not enough supply. And I think, you know, public housing has to play that role um, for, for numerous amount of reasons. Number one, you know, people are moving to rural communities, but they're finding it hard to find a place to live. So, you know, if you want to retain those folks, like we should, uh, that's necessary for economic growth, we've got to house them somewhere. And if their current salaries can't afford a home to buy a home, then I think they've got to look at renting. And we all know what that's like in rural communities. And so then I think about, well, maybe it's public housing, maybe it's up to the, you know, the government and the public to ensure that there's houses so that economic um, growth can take place. 
And so I think we've come from, uh, I feel like maybe housing is a cycle. And, you know, from World War II, after that, you know, homeownership went up and now it's going down because of incomes, inflation, whatever else is going on in the economy. So I feel like, you know, building that housing piece is, is probably key to getting the labor force that we need for rural communities to grow. Um, yeah. Well, speaking of rural um, labor force, this is a passion of yours. And can you tell me about, you know, what your company, um, you know, your the, the values and why you're passionate about it, but also how employment is so important in rural communities? Yeah, absolutely. Those are really two important questions that I get to work on every day. And I also ask myself, you know, um, well, I think I'll start with the second and just kind of explain, you know, why socioeconomically, why that's important. And then, you know, what, what I guess we're doing about it uh, to, to address it. I think employment is everything, you know. Um, lately, I've been watching a lot of Animal Planet and I watched like the Predator series. And last night I was watching like the Polar Bear Predator series. And, you know, polar bears are winter creatures so they eat and get fat all winter and then they like hibernate for a few months where they lose their fat and they become incredibly skinny and you know polar bears can go travel like a long length without getting any hunts you know and and it's it's incredibly difficult due to climate change but they never stop they're they're persistent because that is the purpose of our life to survive you know, that is human nature, no matter what we think, we get up every day, we fight for our lives, that that is what we're born to do biologically. And that is what employment does, it gives a purpose to one's life, you know, to have a job, to provide for your family, to provide for yourself, to be independent, you know, to fight for your life, that is the purpose of our life. So employment is not just economic growth, employment is the purpose of our life, in the means through which we live, you know, the purpose of our life. And when we don't have that, I strongly believe that we have a lot of negative consequences, whether it be mental health, whether it be cr- crimes, you know, whether it be inequality, you know, not being satisfied with your life, not finding the purpose, right? Now, I'm very careful to not mention income because it doesn't matter how much money you make. What matters is that whether or not you're living the life in a way that you want. And employment gives a lot of dignity to folks, and that's key for fulfillment. And that is the reason why I feel that rural communities uh, struggle a bit because there's so few, sometimes so few employment opportunities, or there's not enough of them in the diverse fields. So there might be one in one sector, might be one in another sector. It might not be the opportunity that you're actually wanting from your life, you know. And so I'm convinced that rural communities really need a diverse set of economies, not just agricultural, not just fishing but a wide range so that people can pick where they best suit their talents, you know. And without employment, there's huge inequality, uh, as I spoke about it, you know, crime, socioeconomic injustices. People people can, you know, kind of, like, if through their insecure, you know, when they're not employed, they can kind of pick political leaders that are not the best for society and so on. And so I think that I'm convinced that employment is that, you know, uh, piece that can solve a lot of these injustices. And what we do as a company is 
to, you know, create employment. Um, I think that it's easy to hire from the city. There's a lot of, you know, a lot more folks to hire from, you know, but I think it takes a lot of patience to hire rurally because you know that sometimes the skill set is not there yet, but you're going to have to mentor a lot for it. But those are, you know, those are patients, those are values that we embody that we want to invest in our rural communities. And so there's just wonderful talent, like the amount of hard work that people are willing to put in is just incredible. You know, um, the folks are really grateful. And on top of that, I think we've come across a lot of work that's for rural communities that frankly, I don't think city folks understand because they don't live rurally how communities work, what incentives work for rural folks, you know, just a lot of things you can't, like you can't talk the talk if you don't live the talk, you know. So I feel that that's essential uh, for the work that we do. And so it's been my pleasure to see the company grow to the point where we can offer rural employment. And secondly, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud to be part of that diversification piece in the, in the rural economy where people get to live rurally, they get to work in the work that they want, they contribute to society the most, and, and feel fulfilled, ultimately, you know, to enjoy the hunt of life every day, you know. Oh, gosh. Um, your words are so powerful. Um, I think what you were talking about with housing and employment, those two go so, well, they, they go hand in hand because, we don't have the housing, like you said. It's very, very expensive in a lot of rural communities to live, to buy a house. But there's you can't actually work in the place that you want to live because there's not enough jobs that pay you enough money regularly to actually afford a home in that community. Yeah. And um, you know that is a huge problem to solve. Um, there's and, also, oh, go ahead. Yes. Yeah. No, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead, Shana. No, no, no go ahead. No, I, I just wanted to briefly mention is that, you know, I sometimes before I've come across a sentiment, like that's a rural issue, that's an urban issue. But in my mind, I think rural issues become urban issues. And I think when we talk about housing, that's a big part of it. Rural homelessness becomes urban homelessness. You know, if, if we look at like, the concentration of urban homelessness, a lot of those folks are actually folks that have moved from rural communities to find a job, a better life in urban areas, and found that that actually not not happened. And, and, you know, more sadly, they've lost their social networks, which is what's essential in hard times. And so I, you know, I am, every time I hear like, well, that's a rural issue, I really think, well, you know, for now might be, but it's going to end up being an urban issue at some point as well, you know. Yeah, that is that human heart-centered approach that you take and, and is so, so valuable that, that I, I, I don't hear anywhere else. And I, I just think you're so exceptionally wise when it comes to this. Um, how do we address the elephant in the room? Uh, I know, and I'm going to say this as a white, settler, colonial uh, person living in a rural community. There are systemic issues in rural communities that we can't ignore, like racism, homophobia, transphobia, and generally white supremacy. And, uh, you know, folks who are diverse 
sometimes have to code switch. They can't talk about their religion. They can't talk about their culture. They can't talk about their authentic selves for fear Mm -hmm. of being judged. And so what are your thoughts on that? Social stigma is huge in rural communities. I mean, for I find like it's a little bit easier for me because I didn't grow up in Yarmouth, that I don't have my past behind me, that I could settle here. Can't say the same thing for Yellowknife, for example, right? Because when you're growing up, you're you're a human being. Like by the nature of our human being, we make mistakes, we learn, we grow up, you know. Same thing, like going back to Animal Planet, like cubs make mistakes, cubs learn how to fight, which water to jump into and which one's not, because that is how we learn through life. You know, that's how we fight our fight, like through making mistakes. And when those mistakes follow you and the social stigma follows you through life, people can't become the individuals that they ought to be, I think. Um, and that's a big barrier. So I always recommend people to switch rural communities. If you grew up in one, settle in another um, so that that past doesn't follow you. Like that's one sure way to get rid of it. The other one is just kind of um, being resistant to opinions that don't matter, you know, and that's, that's easier said than done, uh, certainly. But I really think that one has to just have like that, that shield, that, that um, kind of that raincoat, you know, because I mean, at the end of the day, anyone who's made it in life can tell you that they've made mistakes. And when folks look at someone they and that they've you know they understand the realities of life they probably admire all of the things that a person has been through and when that's not admired i think it's just when social stigma you know prohibits someone from growing i think that it's a societal thing and the society is not ready to to be innovative perhaps you know it's 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 a mindset and i think diversity fixes it a little bit you know, when you have new folks coming in, you have introduced a different mindset. You change that a little bit, you know. And then I think it's also up to the individual, you know, um, is that the right place? Should do I need to make a move, you know? Because, um, I mean, we can't control what what it goes on around us, but we can control, like, what we do ourselves, you know. And that's something that I've had to learn in business, too. Like, you know, when we're talking about pricing, like, to be able to hire rurally and create employment rurally, um, I've had to grow outside of rural areas. Um, and and I'm I if I'm solving economic problems, if I'm making society better, that's all that matters to me. You know, I love to work on rural projects because those are the ones that I can bring my most kind of lived experience. But I also work on a lot of urban projects. And I think that what I've learned is that I've got to do what I've got to do in an honest and authentic way. And if that rubs someone off the wrong way, it's not something, to be honest, it's just not my business, you know, but I've got to be fearless. And to be fearless, I've got to be honest. And to be honest, I've got to have some really strong values that are the truth, you know. And and I find like, that's how I've managed social stigma myself. But I don't, I don't really, this is such a hard topic, you know, when you talk about mental health mental health clinics and so on people don't show up to those in rural areas because of stigma they don't want to go to the hospital because of stigma and their stigma is such an inhibiting factor to so much good that there can be done and i really think it needs to be addressed in a societal level um 
Some of it could be infrastructure, like for example, phone, telehealth, you know, uh, making making it more accessible for individuals to access it in a private way. But at the end of the day, I think individuals really need to make that move, like to travel away from home, to come back to it and not be the same anymore. Uh, and in that process, fight stigma and that its expectations, you know. And what do you think white people's responsibility is? And and I'm going to say, I'm I'm going to say, you know, witnessing. So I have witnessed uh, people of color uh, in meetings with me, virtual meetings, uh, colleagues, you know, we're pitching for a contract or something and I get, I get treated better. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I get addressed. Yeah. Uh, I don't have to work as hard. I witness this. I see yeah. it and I cannot unsee it. Um, mm-hmm. How, you know, I guess we need to get to that point where more people are witnessing, like me, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. witnessing and quietly seeing it and then acting, speaking, and, and actually reflecting back to that person. I noticed. I saw what happened. What would you like me to do? How can, and it might be nothing. Maybe mm-hmm. it's only acknowledging that you see it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of white settlers living in rural communities, because it's many of them are primarily white and have been in the past, they're diversifying now, but they're fearful. They, they, mm-hmm. they don't know what they don't know. And, and there's no vulnerability, there's no humility. Um, yeah. yeah, those are my thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, to be honest, I, I guess because I've been hidden behind the cloud of economics, I'm so trained to look at things objectively that sometimes yes. maybe I don't notice these nuances and I've you know, traveled 32 countries in my life and I'd say like I haven't faced very much racism head on, but maybe it's also like me not seeing it. I, I'm not sure like which one it is, right? I think that, you know, because I did study political science and, you know, I try to look at everything from a scientific point of view. I really think that, I guess, white supremacy, if you would call that term, it happens because of unawareness, right? Which is huge in rural communities. Most folks haven't grown up with anybody of color. And so that, that human nature by fear of not knowing of the unknown, of the unfamiliarity, we tend to do certain actions and some of them, um, you know, can be labeled as racism, right? And so um, I guess my answer is a lot forgiving than, than expected, but I've just found through my travels that, you know, folks just behave in fear when they don't know what they're facing. And I've been, you know, sympathetic to that because when I don't know something, I also make stereotypes and prejudgments, which are frankly not true. And so um, I've, I've man- you know, tried to learn about it. When I face something new, I try to be curious about it. You know, through curiosity, I, I kind of fight that stigma, my, my unknown fear, my ignorance, frankly. You know, it's through curiosity we can cure some of that. So I just feel that I encourage people to be more curious when in rural areas, folks face diversity like maybe go out to that new restaurant or you know google google what you know when was this country founded what was the political 
whatever you know thing that happened like just just through curiosity i think people can address it and i think you know i guess to your question about um you know white folks having it easier well i think that that's also natural to some degree in biologically because we we trust right like the trust is the factor so when you see someone that you're familiar with your like the way you can trust is easier and when you see someone not familiar your trust factor is like lower so it's biologically like you know we can explain those variations again i'm a, you know, talking about it in a very scientific view but it helps me understand it right and and yeah. i think you know i've i think i've just had to learn about like how do we build trust like if someone's going to give me a contract or work with me and they haven't worked with a diverse supplier before well how can i build trust how can i understand more of their culture how can i understand the blind spots how can i introduce like my own kind of ethnicity into those conversations in a sustainable way like i can't just throw all at it at once i have to do it in a sustainable slow way where it can be grappled it can be observed you know and you know it's i think it's just building trust and it really isn't only the responsibility of um quote unquote white folks i think it's a responsibility of also uh ethnic folks how to you know assimilate into a new culture you know how to you know learn new things learn new language i think it's both ways to be honest with you that's what i found you know and and i really learned that from traveling to other countries where people mm-hmm. haven't spoke english and i was speaking english and i was like hmm, this sounds like uh colonialism over again i expect people to know english when they really shouldn't you know and so i actually you know changed my viewpoint and started to learn their language and you know google at night some google translate some you know verses to be able to say hi hello like where do i go is this the right place whatever how do i get a taxi right because it was my responsibility i'm in a foreign country where english is not the first language i shouldn't expect people to know what i'm saying i have to make that effort so you know i try to find you know apply that same principle when i go to a new community and people are not familiar with um with what i'm what i offer or who i am and so on so um again very powerful um what's your hope for the future what do you hope uh for rural communities um maybe you and your uh rural community uh but rural canadian communities in general too um my hope is to um my my hope is to grow um i i certainly don't want us to become urban centers cuz you know there would be no differentiation between the rural piece that we have and the city life which i've you know tried very hard to escape but i but i still you know enjoy the city time to time but but in short intervals i really i i hope innovation for rural areas i hope that you know people that want to create that want that clear green field to think you know to create to have that mental peace that they can find rural areas to be a haven you know uh, like a place to resort to to create to calm their minds because that's where creativity flows that's where you can be calm with a calm mind you can achieve much and rural areas offer that luxury that frankly urban areas can't and and um i hope my my hope is that folks become a little bit less materialistic and more community oriented more human so that they can appreciate rural areas for what it is you know its uniqueness um its rawness you know its challenges and just kind of the the silence 
you know, the pure silence in which we can realize a lot, you know. And what do you think our responsibility is to take care of that green field and take care of, you know, the haven that we have in rural communities? Yeah. Well, now I'm going to provide a very uneconomic answer, I guess, which is to be content, you know, to be happy with what we have, not more, not less, you know. I think when you're content, you are happy with what you have. You don't feel like this, you know, capitalist need to acquire everything and grow beyond limits. This like kind of greed of hunger or whatever you can call it, like this constant greed that can never be satisfied. You know, that's vital for preserving rural communities. So I think, but the good news is I think that people that do feel contentment often gravitate towards rural communities. You know, so that's the good news. Um, I hope that rural communities can be a good kind of showcase to people um, that being content is okay in life, you know, to be happy with what you have is perfectly fine, you know. And in fact, probably folks that are hungry and, you know, going at the run every day unsustainably wish that they could be content, you know. And so I, I'd say, like, just being proud of content being the new, the new level of happiness, you know. And I know that that takes a lot of work to get there, and you know. But I really do think that at some point in in one's life, one does realize that being content probably is um, a sustainable goal. You know, and, and what that content is obviously different for everyone. You know, um, I think we should always like further to get better is no means to say that, you know, oh, people should, you know, just stop where they are and, and don't feel the need to get better and to grow, etc. But I think materialistically, really evaluating where we're at, where we really need to be, where we want to be, because that also we deserve through hard work. But at some point, just say, you know, like, what's the number where I can just be happy and, and don't worry about, like, buying up all the land or all of the houses. And you know what I mean? Like, what what is that number where I can just be who I need to be, you know, and, and just be happy with that? And that's my hope for rural communities, that more folks realize that. That's a beautiful way to end. Um, I think that we're going to need a part two. Uh, at some point. Um, oh, but thank, thank you. you thank you so much um, for your wisdom, because I think you're a very wise seer. And uh, we're very lucky to have you in rural Canada. So thank you so much. Thank you, Shauna. And I'm, I'm very pleased to see another entrepreneur, um, a rurally based entrepreneur doing well and, and kind of promoting rurally based, um, com- you know, uh, rurally based organizations and, and rural Canada. Um, I'm very pleased that you thought that I would be a good fit for this. Of course. (laughs) 
You know what would really help me and this podcast keep going? Leaving us a four-star rating or even a review. I'd really appreciate that. To connect with other rural Canadian co-conspirators, subscribe to the Clearing a New Path newsletter or drop me an email. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm. And the music branding is by The Hankering Studio. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Thames Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Luni Lenape, and Adirondwan peoples. The First Nations communities closest to the studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Munsee Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. We will speak to many people across Turtle Island, and as a settler, I'm committed to deepening my understanding of colonialism, dismantling other systems of oppression, my commitment to the TRC calls to action, and to reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth and to Spirit for the opportunity for love and connection, and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who I believe still walk here. Until next time, 